Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of BDO's Private Equity Perspective podcast. I'm Emily Halpern, Atlantic Director in BDO's private equity practice based in the Greater Washington, D.C. office. I'll be your host for this episode. I have a longtime friend and colleague with me here today, very excited to discuss the hottest trends in today's private equity market. With a focus on how investors are thinking about incorporating ESG initiatives into their investments. A quick reminder to our audience that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. Okay, with that, I'd like to introduce you to Mina Pacheco-Nazemi, who's a Managing Director and Co-Head of Funds and Co-Investments at Barings Alternative Investments. Welcome to the show, Mina. We're excited to have you here. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for having me. So this should be a fun dialogue. So let's just um, jump right in, Mina. Can you start by giving us some background on your firm and your role in your group? Because uh, you all have many responsibilities across the board. Perfect. Um, well, thank you, Emily. So, so yes, as, as you mentioned, um, I serve as a co-head of Bearings FCI. Um, we are the funds and co-investment group, uh, part of the Bearings platform. Uh, what we do here is we invest across both private equity and um, real assets. And my team tends to focus on, you know, as the name says, funds and co-investments. But what's really, I think, more interesting is some of the other items that we focus on as a corollary to the FCI team. Um, we invest um, a lot with independent sponsors. We do a lot of those types of transactions. Uh, we anchor managers. And we've been doing a lot around what we call GP solutions, which is uh, working with managers in really two fronts, which is uh, both doing preferred and NAV loans at the fund level, but also um, doing a lot around the continuation vehicles, whether it's a single or multi-asset. So let's just pause there for a minute before we kind of go further into the discussion. So will you just expand a little bit on the preferred and NAV loans um, and what you all are doing, um, and then just kind of talk a little bit about independent sponsors? Absolutely. So uh, what we found in the market is that sometimes managers um, maybe um, at the end of their investment period um, within their vehicle, however, have an opportunity to, whether it is transform one of their existing assets, uh, they need additional capital um, to help support their growth, whether, whether the business is performing well, or even maybe it's underperforming. And getting additional capital or leverage um, may be challenging at the asset level or, um, or for, for one of the assets or, or a couple of the assets within there. So what we can do is provide a loan at the, at the fund level. So um, effectively you are cross collateralizing um, your assets there and um, we can provide some additional capital. So you could do that as a kind of a NAV loan um, or you could do that as a preferred. And we find that investors um, are, are absolutely open to that and GPs are open to that because it, it just kind of creates another um, another access point to some to some capital. On the GP solution side though, we're also looking at what we call the continuation vehicles um, where you can really identify one asset uh, that you perhaps 
um, don't want to sell at, the, at that point in time. Maybe you find that there is an opportunity to continue to grow. Um, you've identified an add-on, but you're at the end of your investment period. Um, but also it may be long in the tooth. You may want to create some liquidity for your investors. So um, we can lead transactions where, um, you know, we can um, identify one of those assets, create an SPV and create this continuation vehicle and provide that additional capital to support that business and give your LPs the option to generate some liquidity. Uh, but also you as the, as the GP have the ability to continue to do what you've done best, which is grow that business, transform that business in partnership with your management team. No, that's great, Nina. I mean, that that certainly is very unique offerings that that Barings does and also gives you a, a lot to work with to offer funds and as well as your investments. So that's great. What would you say, I know this is hard because there's many, but what would you say are the top three themes that you're seeing in the private equity market today? We could talk for hours, but yes, let's, we can let's start with um, you. Well, I think with the things that are obviously in the press that you're we're hearing a lot about are one is inflation. Um, two, I think, is also valuations. Um, but three is also just how how um, investors are investing in the asset class um, in a very different way, right? And compared to where it was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, as 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 many of as you know, and many maybe um, of your listeners may know, I've been a big proponent of investing in the lower end of the market and with emerging managers. Um, and we're finding investors continue to be interested in that space. But the reality is we're seeing more dollars being allocated to the larger platforms. And so I think that's that's obviously changed a lot versus kind of 15 years ago and different opportunities um, come about from just those, those changes um, in this sector. And then, so can we expand on that for a little bit too, on also just what you're seeing just with funds themselves um, pivoting, you know, dealing with inflation and especially down at the portfolio company level. Absolutely. I mean, there's this big debate, obviously, if it's transitory or not. I, I think um, there are elements that may be transitory, but I think there's some elements that are more permanent. Um, I think about um, some of the businesses where it's heavy on the labor side, right? Um, where we're finding that there are wage increases to attract new talent, right? Or retain the talent. That is not short term. That is something long term. Um, so we're finding that investors need to take that into consideration as they're making their acquisitions. But even if you have an existing um, company and portfolio with that, um, overall, we're finding investors um, are thinking about it. And there are the GPs that we're backing are, are thinking about it. But I think nobody has a real crystal ball uh, on, on what's going to happen really long term here with, with inflation. I mean, we're seeing it across the board. Um, and, and the markets are reacting, right? Um, the markets are reacting to that. We're seeing, you know, valuations at all time high, even despite some of these, some of these items. And um, I think as an investor myself, we're looking to buy assets that we where we have a lot of conviction in the business model, the management team, because regardless of whatever the market environment is, you obviously want to invest in best in class, best in class managers, best in class uh, management teams and best in class businesses with with models that um, that are can be resilient to and, and adapt to whatever change is going on in the market. So let's let's pause there and expand a little bit on deal activity. That's that's the buzz. Everyone knows it's robust. 
Um, but, you know, let's talk a little bit more about where the money is going. So, you know, just a stat, earlier this year, BDO um, had their spring capital pull survey. And we found that 26.5% of fund managers said that they plan to direct the most capital towards new deals and investments in the next six months. That number is ticked up significantly. They also continue to prioritize providing relief to their portfolio companies. I mean, would you say that that this is ringing true with what you're seeing in terms of P allocations? I mean, is it is it more of the larger or smaller funds who are closing new deals versus add-ons? I'm not surprised by those stats. Um, through the depths of COVID, we found that a lot of the managers, especially if they were more established managers, were spending a lot of time just really triaging their portfolio and, and making sure that um, their existing portfolio, um, portfolio companies were, were able to survive during the depths of the pandemic. Um, because we do a lot with smaller managers and more importantly, emerging managers, um, on the flip side, we found that those managers that had um, were maybe on their fund one or fund two or fund three and didn't have that huge legacy portfolio actually took advantage of COVID and that time in COVID to be um, investing a lot in the market, right? And, and so last year we had a, like, um, we had a huge year where we, we, we did a lot, of, a lot of transactions, mostly with um, our, our emerging managers, independent sponsors. Um, so, you know, we're not out of the woods yet here with COVID. Um, so we're starting to see now, um, you know, managers starting to now refocus on, on new businesses, new transactions, and, and doing more add-ons now that we have a better handle of, of what COVID is. Right. I'm not saying we're out of it, but we're absolutely seeing that. Um, and, and I think that's just holds true. And this is why we're, we're big fans of investing with these emerging managers, because we just really like the fact that you have that time and attention and that focus um, mm -hmm. with, with those types of platforms. And, um, and that's whether you're in the COVID environment or in the non-COVID environment, it's just, it's just how the math works. And you think about, you know, partners to dollars and partners to um, number of portfolio companies. Okay, so let's let's take the angle more of emerging managers. And so that definition <laughs> over the years has has certainly changed, um, and obviously has you know I feel like different LPs have different definitions of what emerging managers are. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. yeah, because I think that sometimes that term is 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 kind of played a little bit more than than it should. Yeah. 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 Well, um, having having kind of been in the quote unquote emerging manager space, um, it now feels like almost 20 years now, probably close to 20 years. You're right. The definition has been used um, it differently by different institutions and different types of players and, and at different points in the market. Right. But overall, emerging managers um, are, are what we categorize as um, institutional funds one, two and three and typically under a billion dollar um, in fund size. and um, when we think about those types of platforms, we're talking about teams who've worked together before, um, have an institutional track record from their previous platform, whether it's attributable or not, but are individuals and teams who have experience investing before. So this isn't necessarily their first rodeo, and now they're launching their own platform. We've seen teams come out of family offices as well, as well as kind of your traditional private equity platforms. Um, you know, with 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 emerging managers, though, um, you have seen activity 
through over the years um, from some institutions to also support women and diverse talent, mm -hmm. um, which is a subset of that. And, and um, there's a lot of um, interest in that. And there has always been a lot of interest from that, especially from larger institutions, um, larger public plans, or even just kind of um, maybe even some of the ENFs. Even two, three years ago, it had been really oriented to um, the women in diverse movement and then supporting women in diverse talent and asset managers had been maybe with, um, you know, 20, 30 investors. And now we're seeing it more spread throughout um, the institutional, um, you know, LPs, whether they're smaller endowments, foundations, smaller city pension plans, uh, larger pension plans, whatever it may be. And, and that's interesting, too, about the emerging managers, because, you know, there's also some now that are really bringing in that operator background. You know, it's you, you've got people coming out now who have run businesses, you know, have that investment background and now partnering, you know, with individuals who have the track record. And, you know, I think that's more relevant now more than ever um, with a lot of the triage that some of these funds were having to do and not necessarily having that, you know, operational experience um, of getting down into the trenches with these businesses. You're absolutely right. I mean, I've been an advocate for specialist funds where you have a focus, you have that operating experience in-house um, in or as, as part of your platform in, in some form or fashion, where you know that sector well, you know that industry well, you know who the players are. Um, and we've um, we've always invested with with those types of managers. Um, the last thing I want to do is back a generalist manager who's learning an industry every day as they're bidding for a new business in an auction type process. Yeah. We really like to back managers who know that sector well, know that industry well. They may have invested in it before. They know who the players are. They know who the good management teams are to back, and then they invest in that. But they're also able to roll up their sleeves and do more with that asset. Um, than just apply leverage, right? Which had been, you know, if I think about 20, 25 years ago, right? What what really your traditional buyout um, play was, was really kind of adding leverage and maybe making some improvements along the way. So the better platforms and better um, managers have that capability, that knowledge, that know-how. And um, and frankly, it positions them to um, be better partners with their, with their companies and management teams, right? Because um, good managers um, or good management teams, whether you're you know, at that C-suite, um, you know, want want to want to learn, right? They want to continue to build um, on what they've done and and have and, and leverage best practices from the industry. And as an investor, um, as a GP, you have access to so much. You've seen a lot. You've you've looked at a number of other competitors and in, um, in that specific industry, and so um, you can bring that to the table. So the better ones are able to do that, apply that, and more importantly, make quick changes. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen that where you can you can within you know 12 to 24 months see a noticeable change in, in how how companies do business. And and I think that's that's the right partnership that you should have as a private equity firm and in a company. These are all great points, Mina. Next, I'd like to turn it over to our coffee break guest, Karen Baum, partner and national market leader of BDO's advisory services. Karen is based in BDO's Dallas office. Let's hear what she has to say. Hi, I'm Karen Baum, and I'm the national market leader and sustainability leader for BDO's advisory services practice. And I've spent more than 25 years working as an M&A advisor, an entrepreneur, and as an operator in a number of PE-backed companies. 
And I, you know, when I look back over the many points along my way in my career, sustainability has actually been a recurring theme in its, its various shapes and forms, um, even though I might not have recognized them at the time. So today, I'd like to talk about the trends that we're seeing in ESG and sustainability um, and how they're impacting private equity. And we're finding ourselves seeking resiliency amidst all this social and economic fallout of what I would call a sort of quasi-post-pandemic world where social and environmental concerns have become much more acute. And the you know, interestingly enough, the investor community has long been at the leading edge of driving the sustainability movement, particularly in Europe and, and to a lesser degree, but certainly rapidly growing here in the U.S. And it's become an important principle now in driving investment strategies for many larger funds and investment vehicles. So there's four trends that I see around private equities integration of ESG that I think are, are pretty interesting. So the first one is not surprising, and that's the increase we're seeing in LPs pumping up the pressure to incorporate ESG into their investment and ownership decisions. Um, ESG took an even stronger hold, I would say, in the PE community over just this past year as firms began to take action to mitigate the short-term effects of the pandemic, but they also started thinking about how longer-term climate risk might impact their portfolios going forward. You know, similarly, ESG is taking on a greater emphasis in the LP's diligence process. In fact, 88% of of managers um, take consideration of ESG factors into account when they're conducting diligence. And this was according to a recent 2021 study. And that same study indicated that almost three quarters of LPs ask whether funds have an ESG consultant in place to advise on responsible investing across their portfolios. Uh, So interestingly, that said, you know, here in the U.S., though, there continues to be disparity on how funds are addressing uh, climate risks. Some recent studies suggest that some, but not all investors, believe GPs are taking client risk seriously in their investment policies, with almost 40 percent of them remaining somewhat ambivalent about it. So, okay, the second trend um, worth noting is collaboration in the investor community around climate risk and Little less than a year ago, three of the largest pension funds in the world, that's CalSTRS in the U.S., the USS Investment Management Fund in the U.K., and and Japan's uh, Government Pension Investment uh, Fund, issued together a joint statement basically calling for a greater focus on long-term sustainability risks rather than focused on on, uh, short-term returns at the expense of other stakeholders, including the environment, workers, and communities. They warned asset managers who who only focus on short-term financial measures and ignore long-term sustainability risks are not attractive partners for them. So this was a very strong message about where they plan to invest and what their focus is. And that's just one example. Um, in fact, recently, Ardian, Carlisle, Macquarie, SoftBank, and others formed what's called the One Planet Private Equity Funds Initiative, which has a goal to advance the understanding of climate-related risks and opportunities in their portfolio so they can build basically better and more sustainable businesses. And the list of initiatives just goes on and on and on. Um, and the third trend is around greater focus on diversity. And in fact, this is also another example of how the investor community is coming together. 
In December last year, uh, a group called the Institutional LPs Association announced its Diversity in Action initiative for GPs and LPs, requiring their signatories to meet four core diversity, equality, and inclusion criteria. And some funds are actually taking on additional steps to support initiatives dedicated to advancing groups that are underrepresented in the investment industry, such as Black women. And, and as an example, Blackstone, KKR, and a number of others recently became the latest members of Black women in asset management. And there are many, many other examples of this. And then lastly, we're seeing a shift in ESG focus from strictly compliance and risk management to truly value creation. And I would say that Ardian is a is really great example of this. Ardian um, is one of Europe's largest buyout houses and the world's biggest fund of funds manager with a $112 billion portfolio across its, its various fund programs. And they basically came out and said that five years ago, ESG was, was pretty much a check-the-box exercise. But now they see it as a value protection and a value creation driver. And so as a result, they want to see how ESG is considered when setting allocations or making investment decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So in closing, as the investor community you know, continues to navigate sustainability and the path uh, of value creation that integrating ESG into its portfolio creates, a significant shift in business models as we know them is very much underway. Thank you, Karen. We appreciate your insight. Now let's resume our conversation with Mina. Mina, for this the second half, let, let's dive in more on what's going on with ESG and really implementing ESG into certain funds. Um, you know, it appears that LPs are pushing private equity firms to integrate ESG issues into their investment programs. In fact, in BDO's survey, 94% of fund managers said it was important to their LPs to incorporate ESG into their investment criteria. However, it seems that most firms are still in the early stages of figuring out how to factor in ESG. You know, so let's have a real discussion on what's really going on here and you know, why is now the right time for PE to be focusing on ESG? Um, and with that too, knowing that ESG is, is a very common term in Europe. And so it's it's been trickling into the US, but now it, it's really coming uh, front and center. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, overall, um, I will say that there is a lot what I describe as the greenwashing and the pinkwashing in the industry where um, people put together a nice fancy report on their ESG practices. Um, but the reality is the average GP doesn't think about ESG as really, they don't think about it as a risk mitigator nor as a value enhancer. And I, I think that's the missing opportunity overall. And so if you're doing if you're doing ESG right, you're identifying areas um, where there could be potential risk, right? You could think about it even from like an S standpoint, we just talked about where we are um, from a labor shortage standpoint, where we are. If you're doing your, if you're treating your employees right, you're you have a good relationship there within your community, right? You're gonna be, you're gonna keep your employees, right? You're gonna keep your employees even though someone across the street is offering an extra dollar per hour. Um, on the e side, if you're a manufacturer and if you're not thinking about resource conservation or 
um, you know, water conservation, et cetera, you're, you're really not really managing your business correctly. I do think from a, from a G perspective on the governance side, that is one thing PE does very well. Right. But, um, so, so overall, I would say there is, there's a lot of talk from an ESG standpoint. And I think your, your, your quote, um, when your stat is absolutely correct, there has to be a lot more around it, but it's, it's more than just checking the box and saying that you do it and it's included in your due diligence process. The people who actually do it well and who really embrace it and understand the value of it are going to see better returns, are going to see um, that their companies are going to perform better, uh, you know, in the short term and also in the long term. This is timely because for many reasons, but also you've got a lot of managers out there who are going to their LP saying, oh, we're incorporating ESG. Um, so when you put your LP hat on, you know, what are the things that you hear that you're like, that you're questioning? Are they putting in an ESG lens? And, and maybe what is your message to managers out there, you know, as they're raising new funds? Um, mm -hmm of how they want to communicate this. Yeah, it, it, it's, 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 it's like anything. Um, the good LPs are going to double click and they're going to, they're going to continue to dig and, and ask the question, explain how, explain what you're doing, how is it created value and really continue to peel that onion. Um, I do think that, um, Five years ago, um, you know, the LPs were at a different point in time, right? And now a lot of LPs who are truly interested in seeing um, some movement there are, are, are asking deeper questions. Even on the diversity side, um, it's not just about, hey, hiring a woman or a person of color and, and putting a fancy title. Um, we're looking and asking about economics. So don't just call a woman or a person of color a partner. Um, right. We're going to compare and see how are how are the economics for those individuals versus uh, their peers. Mm -hmm. So I would say that for those LPs who really do care and understand the issues, um, they're going to ask um, and they're going to want to understand. But more importantly, um, they're going to be measuring you to that, you know, the next time around. Mm -hmm. And um, as managers are coming back to market, in my view, just sooner and sooner, right, where it feels like. 24 months to 36 months since from one, one fund closed to another, um, there is time there for some changes to happen. And so those LPs are going to be tracking and mm -hmm. wanting to see what has changed within their, not only with their organization, but how they work with their portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's exciting that, you know, now that, that there's finally this attention, I just read an article that one of the hottest jobs right now is, you know, being director of ESG at a, at a fund or at a firm. When I think about it, it's no, it's no longer an HR role. I feel like that's what it was, you know, many years ago. And, and now I think ESG, and I would think as an LP and as a GP, it's how do you also bring this into your culture? You know, with, with your employees, how are, how are you thinking about ESG? Are you actually implementing, you know, ESG at, at a personal level? Um, that you can bring that if you're doing it yourself to what you're doing externally. Um, so I, I think it just expands on, on many. Absolutely. Many layers. Absolutely. And, and I think if, if, if 2020 um, was not a, a, you know, awakening for people, um, you know, I would say my, my message to just kind of broader corporate America, right. And, and, and where we are um, with just, 
the overall um, wealth gap were, you know, I think we as investors need to influence um, companies and think about how can corporate America move away from just squeezing a an extra dollar out of um, the average American? How are we going to increase the pie, right, uh, for, for every American, right? And so I think changing that mentality of just taking um, and, and more to growing is I think really, really, it's, it's something powerful, right? If we think about what, you know, the influence that we have as, as institutional investors. So I just kind of put that out there um, for everybody and how they're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. It's it's not just about how do we kind of, you know, take and, and squeeze, but how do we grow? And we know, I mean, that greenwashing and pinkwashing are real issues and, and thinking about how do we see the consequences playing out for, for PE targets that, you know, are not authentic and their ESG and their DEI commitments and communications. Absolutely. Mina, I appreciate you being so open about your observations. Um, we have time for one more question today, and this is going to require you to think ahead and, and pull out your crystal ball. What are your predictions for 2022 and where is your focus going to be? So I'm not great at the crystal ball questions, but one thing I'll tell you is that how we're thinking about our allocations as we're private equity investors and, um, and lo longer term investors. Um, we continue to have a lot of conviction in that lower end of the market, lower middle market, I would say overall, right? We, we do think that smaller businesses are more nimble, are able to react quickly and adapt um, to different situations. And then you see a lot more innovation in that, in that segment of the market. So still, still very bullish on that. Um, very, um, we also, we haven't spent a lot of time on this, but we're big investors on the real asset side. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities in, in really um, kind of how we think about, we, we always talk about the real assets and real asset 2.0, which is um, really taking advantage of some of the themes that we're seeing, which is um, accelerating technological change, right? Um, as we think about, consumerism and working from home and um, and even the energy transition, which is moving moving away um, from fossil based um, energy to to more um, renewable. Right. And so um, so we think about that. And then we're also think about thinking about investing in, in intangible assets. Right. There's things like water rights, music rights, et cetera. So um, having a, that diversified portfolio that will succeed longer term. Um, and then there's just other themes, right, that, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're looking at, and it could be anything from consumer trends, right, not beyond the healthy living, but better packaging, um, e-health, right, um, continuing on the, 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 the other theme on real assets is investing kind of maybe in minerals and mining, thinking about um, where we are from the electrification Mm -hmm. um, the use of copper, right, and the need for copper. So that's that's kind of what we're spending our time on in in, in 2022. So um, and then still doing it in the way where we're backing, um, anchoring, you know, first, second, third time funds, um, doing a lot around, like I mentioned earlier, opportunities and and supporting managers with with these continuation vehicles and just broadly our, our GP solutions. So that's how we're thinking about it, and um, we're we're really excited about 2022. It's 2021 has been an active year, but we know that 2022 is going to continue to grow um, from an activity standpoint. 
Well, with that, you're going to have a very busy 2022. (laughs) We'll see what parts of that end up holding true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've reached the end of this episode. This was a robust discussion, which I knew that we would have. And I'm sure our audience will find this information valuable. I look forward, Mina, to the next time we can connect, hopefully in person. And I wish you and Bearings and your team the the best for the rest of this year and beyond. I want to thank you once again for taking the time to join Perspectives Podcast. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, BDO. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. 